So we'll be in Isaiah 41, starting in verse 25, finishing up that chapter that we began last week. And let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your love for us, for your grace, your goodness, your mercies that are new every morning, for great is your faithfulness. And we ask that you would guide this time, that you would speak powerfully to each heart, that we would prepare ourselves to hear from you and and to reverence you, to fear you, and to be soft, clay moldable by your word, by your powerful hands. Thank you for your goodness that we can come to you and seek your face and worship you with songs and, and glorify you in fellowship. So we pray, Lord, be everything for us today. Guide us, guard our hearts, and May we humble ourselves before you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, do you know of a king or a prime minister or president who ever laid down his life for the nation or for people? I'm not aware of it, aside from Christ, who is the king of kings. He gave salvation to all. He did it even for his enemies. So he didn't just do it just to bail out his people or his nation. He did so, so all could be born again. And we can go through life, even as a believer, not realizing that our need, how deep our need for Christ goes, how much we need a Savior, not just to escape hell, but from our current situation and our our issues. We need those daily reminders of how much we need Jesus. We need him to live this life as he, in the way that fully pleases him. And we can have bonds in our life we, we, that we need broken. We can have difficulties that we have no answers for. And we can, we can think that because of our knowledge of doctrine that we're trusting God or we're doing the right thing. But those don't often, they don't always correlate. Being able to ex- understand or explain a doctrine doesn't mean that we're trusting God or seeking Him. So today we're talking about uh, the faithfulness of God and how he seeks faithful servants, people that he can trust, people that he can count on. And it's an interesting thing coming out of this passage that uh, we can think about. I was reading this week when Paul wrote to the repentant Corinthians in 2 Corinthians seven sixteen. he says, Therefore I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. And that is a pretty remarkable statement where they had um, allowed sin into the church, but then they overreached with their discipline. And then he, he wrote the second letter to correct that and to encourage them to be obedient to God. But because of their repentance, he says, I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. And I don't know about you, but I want to be someone that, that God our king, our master, would have confidence in that there's a servant that is faithful. He or she is going to do the things that I've asked him or her to do. Contrast that with the man in Proverbs 25, 19. says, confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth and a foot out of joint. Well, a bad tooth and a foot out of joint, painful, not able to fulfill the purpose for which they exist. I don't want to be compared with those. Like, oh, bad tooth. I bite down and, ow, I'm reminded that I can't trust that that tooth. 
So we're going to talk about Isaiah and how he was faithful to speak the words that God gave him. Through God, he was able to outlast kings. He spoke of a coming king, the anointed one, the Messiah, who would be the savior of the world. There was no deliverer amongst God's people. There was no idol that could save them. But he would speak of the coming Messiah who would not fail as their priests had, as their false prophets had, as their idols had. Now we know Jesus has come, and he's coming again, our Messiah. And while he's away, the Holy Spirit's being given authority as God to make us strong, to stand in difficult days, to walk in his victory, to be empowered, to glorify him. And I've heard it said that Christians do not fight, they do not fight for victory, but from victory. And that's a very important distinction. And instead of being proud in that, it should make us humble to realize that we need God. He supplied the victory. Without Him, we can do nothing. So we pick up from last Sunday in Isaiah 41, 25. He says, I have raised up one from the north, and he shall come. From the rising of the sun, he shall call on my name. And he shall come against princes as though mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who has declared from the beginning that we may know? And former times that we may say he is righteous. Surely there is no one who shows. Surely there is no one who declares. Surely there is no one who hears your words. The first time I said to Zion, look, there they are. And I will give to Jerusalem one who brings good tidings. For I looked and there was no man. I looked among them. But there was no counselor who, when I asked of them, could answer a word. Indeed, they are all worthless. Their works are nothing. Their molded images are wind and confusion. God had taken the idols of Israel and Judah and he put them on trial. He said, hey, let your idols do something. Let them predict the future. Let them explain the history. Let Just do something. Do anything. And he said, I looked, and there was no one that could answer. They could say nothing to me. There's no counselor, there's no helper, there's no one that can deliver you from your current trouble. God saved Jerusalem from the Assyrian siege, but he would allow the Babylonians to come, to conquer, to tear down the temple, to break down the walls and to burn the gates. He would allow them to take them captive for 70 years, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And for 70 years, they would experience the oppression and the bitterness of captivity with the knowledge that the temple of God lay in ruins. It's like when God was there, they didn't seek him alone. But since they were isolated from him and cut off from him, their hearts would long to go back to him. In that oppression, in that bitterness, they would say, Lord, turn our hearts to seek you again. They just didn't realize when they had him in the, I mean, God's presence was there. He was there at this time, but they didn't value him as they ought to have because they served all these other gods and their hearts were divided. God would raise up one from the north and he shall come. This is speaking of Cyrus, of the Medes and Persians, He would come and overthrow the Babylonian Empire. He would send the Jews back to Jerusalem to rebuild. His advance, it's compared to a potter who treads the clay. Clay isn't able to put up a lot of resistance when it's underfoot. You add some water, 
As you walk on it, the potter would purify it of impurities. He would also mix it into a right consistency so he could make something out of it. And so Cyrus would come and he would just trample down. And he would, out of the Babylonian Empire, there would be the new empire, the Medes and Persians. Now, if you were a people oppressed, the idea of deliverance would be a welcome one. Now, the deliverer that God has sent us, he's been declared from the beginning, the righteous one who is a mediator, he is an intercessor, he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. These people had no words. They had no answer how to fix their problems, but Jesus is the word who became flesh and he dwelt among us. He spoke on his own authority, not like the scribes who were just parroting what they had heard before, but he spoke the truth. I love that no matter how great or how difficult, no matter how oppressive or trying circumstances may be, no matter how long it seems that they've been that way, Jesus is able to tread them as a potter does the clay. We're reading with our family in Jeremiah where he says, go down to the potter's house. I want to show you something. The potter's making something and and as he's observing, it says it was, it was marred in the potter's hand. And so he kind of smashed it down and just made something else, as it seemed good to him to make. And he says, Are, is not Israel like this clay in my hands? The moment I speak concerning a nation to bring it up or to bring it down, I can do it. A nation that's been there for so long, I can just say the word. And if God can do that with nations, can't he do it with me? Can't he do it with you? He's a deliverer, a savior. He can fashion us into whatever image glorifies him. And if such a savior is for us, who can be against us? Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and the smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. If you have a New King James, you might notice that the translators did not capitalize the personal pronouns in the end of chapter 41. But in the beginning of chapter 42, the he's are capitalized. Cyrus is the one referenced to. He's really a shadow of what Christ is the substance. He was that deliverer, and in the scriptures, God calls Cyrus his anointed one. But Jesus is the, the true anointed one, the one that uh, Cyrus was a shadow of. Jesus is the substance. And this here is a clear reference to the Messiah, God, Jesus Christ. This is confirmed in Matthew chapter 12, 15 through 21. This passage is quoted from Isaiah. And there's a little bonus as well. It says, A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory. And in his name Gentiles will trust. So a Gentile is someone who is not born a Jew. I would fit into that category. And so here you see yourself in the Bible. 
Jew, he is the God of the Jew, the Gentile, the slave, free, man, woman, and child. Anyone who will repent and come to him, he is your deliverer. He is your savior. And in his name, you can trust. Isn't that amazing that he'll love and trust anyone? That if whoever loves and trusts him, he will accept gladly. He'll, he'll, he'll take us on. He's happy to. This word behold there, it's intended to wake us up. It's like if you haven't been paying attention, listen, take note. In these few verses, we have, I guess, in a spiritual sense, an entire side of beef to feed upon, much more than we can really take in. But the first thing we learn about the Messiah is that he is God's servant. He says, my servant. This word means bondman or bond slave. That would be someone who chose out of love for his master to willingly be a slave for his whole life. It's also, this servant is described as my elect one. That's someone chosen by God. He is the one in whom the Father delights. Have a great picture when Jesus is baptized. Remember, he comes out of the water. The Spirit of God in the form of a dove descended and rested upon him. And a voice called from heaven and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit would be upon him. Notice in verse 1, it says God upholds this servant. It means to sustain, obtain, to keep fast. Alan Redpath also suggests how the Father trusted and depended on Jesus, which was an interesting concept. I hadn't really thought of it before. From the Enduring Word commentary, he's quoted, this picture is taken from an eastern court where a monarch is in a procession, and as he walks, he leans upon a favorite courtier. This verse, in fact, could well be translated, Behold my servant upon whom I lean. It is an indication of the special favor and confidence. So we have the picture of God the Father leaning upon God the Son, counting upon him and trusting him to fulfill all his purposes. Now, this interpretation has merit. We see that demonstrated several times in the Old Testament. We're going to read one of those later on. But it's amazing to think how God's not just chosen Jesus as his elect, as his servant, as the Messiah, but he's also chosen us as his elect, those who will repent and believe on Christ. He chose the Jews as his people, not because of their wealth or their might or their power, but out of his grace, and he's also chosen me and you, if you're Christ's, out of his grace. To be chosen by God, how humbling, how amazing, that all of us, despite our sins, our weaknesses, our failures, our discouragements, that God would choose us and want to be with us forever. Think of a king in those days, how they would they weren't isolated all by themselves. They needed to have advisors. They had confidants, people in whom they trusted. They had their, their circle of rulers that would help them uh, establish rule and governance among the people. They would have confidence in particular aides, perhaps even a bond slave, someone that they had raised from a child that they could really trust, that they knew was loyal to them. Because a bond slave was someone who, out of love for their master, said, I could be free, but I don't want to be. I want to remain under this master because I love him. 
and I want to serve him for all of my life. And many times those people that made that commitment of a lifetime, they were entrusted with great things from their masters because they said, here's a guy who's giving his life to me. He's proved, he's demonstrated that he's committed because he, he is mine for life. So as the father strengthened and upheld the son, we know the spirit was within him. God entrusted unto him the kingdom. We who have been born again, we too have been filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in chapter 1 of Acts, it says the Holy Spirit will come upon us and give us power to be his witnesses um, here, there, and everywhere, in Jerusalem, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So the question is, can God depend on you? Are you a faithful servant? Are you like that bond slave who said, I willingly give my whole life to serve this master because I love him? He speaks of the Messiah. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. Jesus came without fanfare. He didn't, as Absalom, hire men to run before his chariots. In fact, he didn't have a chariot or even a donkey of his own. He had to borrow a donkey, right, when he rode into Jerusalem. He didn't send criers before him like Nebuchadnezzar did into all the villages and say and threaten with death, if you don't bow before my image at the sound of the music, then this is going to be your punishment. He didn't go into Samaria and start berating them from a soapbox because of their sin, but he sat down quietly and had a, a friendly conversation with an outcast Samaritan woman. He didn't go, take me to your leader. No, he, he, he went to the lowly. And he, ha- he, he called men who were fishermen, tax collectors, people that really didn't have good standing or high, um, I guess, social status in that day. He didn't seek notoriety. He wasn't after fame or publicity. When people sought him many times, they, he would leave them or he would retreat in a solitary prayer or he would say, send the crowds away. We're going to go to the other side. So he wasn't trying to attract attention. He simply was doing the will of God. He was teaching the people the truth. He didn't rage when he was falsely accused. He didn't threaten when he was arrested. When he was brought before Caiaphas and Pontius Pilate and Herod, he said very little to the point where they were quite surprised. In fact, he said nothing before Herod. And Pilate's like, aren't you going to speak to me? Don't you know that I have power over your life? And he says, hey, you don't have any power but what's been given you from above. A picture of meekness and self-control. You know that Jesus was the only one in control during that whole scene? Judas, he betrayed Jesus for money. Money was his God. The disciples... They were controlled by fear when those temple guards came. They ran away. Jesus remained. Then he's brought before the scribes, the Pharisees. They're lying. They're envious. They bring him before Pilate. So the Pharisees, they are spurned by envy, controlled by envy. They stir up the crowd. 
The crowd is controlled by these religious leaders and they start shouting for Jesus to be crucified. And Pilate, because there's this big mob and this activity going on and he doesn't want to cause a scene, he's controlled by the people. So he washes his hands of the whole thing. And the soldiers, they were under orders. Jesus was the only one in control and he's not shouting and screaming. He's saying things like, Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So he's not shouting. He's not trying to fire people up. It says there, A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. He says the world is condemned already because you've rejected the Son of God, because you're in the darkness. You prefer darkness over the light. Jesus spoke compassionately to the oppressed. He touched the people who were sick. He ministered to those enslaved by sin. He did not judge. He said, go and sin no more. I don't know if you know much about reeds, but they're hollow plants that live, that, that grow in the swamps or marshes or, I don't know, bodies of water. It doesn't take much wind to bend them. They're very hollow and very frail. It's like if you were to crush one, it would kind of just fall over. Like the cat, we've called the cat of nine tails or something. I, I don't know what they call them here, but like a reed or a rush. Once it gets bent, it's never going to stand back up again. It's like a permanent condition. The point is, we would step and push reeds aside without even thinking of them. It's not like they say, oh, stop that, or they have feelings. Like, it's a reed. It's like a weed. It's not really an important or significant thing. And once a reed is bent or bruised, it's not reversible, so why not break it? What's the big deal? When we see something that's been clearly made by others, we don't always value it. We made a very necessary rule in my in our house for our boys, that you only have permission to knock down blocks if you set them up, right? If you build them, you can knock them over. You can't come over and knock over your brother's stack of blocks. We, we had to make that rule because guess what was happening? You only have the right to smash that Play-Doh sculpture if you were the one that made the Play-Doh sculpture. And you're only allowed to kick down the sandcastle if you built the sandcastle. It's very simple, but these are necessary rules. I remember at youth camp, we spent hours making this snow fort, and it was cool. It had like two rooms, and we're like, we're talking about, yeah, yeah, we'll come back tomorrow, and we'll, we'll, we'll build it better, and I wonder if it'll last the night. And, and we left for 15 minutes, and I kid you not, the thing was smashed to the ground. Because some other kids saw it. They saw us leave and they go, huh, let's go mess with that thing. And they just broke it. And we just assumed that everyone else would care about it as much as we did. I mean, we spent hours building it. But this is in our nature. We just see something and we just treat it with contempt. We, we don't treat it with the same love and care that maybe someone else does. Even when it comes to a sandcastle or a snow fort. Often people don't care about what others have made and, and we don't give the things God has made, as much care as we should too. Now here, we see some parallelism, which is something common in Hebrew poetry. He says, a bruised reed he will not break, 
a smoking flax he will not quench. So these are two pictures of a similar idea. Flax was a fiber. It was used in oils, like oil lamps, later in candles. And if a wick needed trimming, if it was low in oil or was becoming too short, it would begin to smolder and smoke. And so instead of producing light, which is the purpose of a lamp, it would just be smoking and it would be irritating. And you just go, like, put that thing out. You wouldn't want it around. It says that this Messiah would not quench that smoking flax. He didn't desire to snuff out smoldering lives or the embers of a life to crush a wounded spirit. He wanted to supply the Holy Spirit so that light could shine from that life like never before. He came to revive the discouraged, to empower souls to shine as the light of the world, even as he is light of the world. I'm sure if you noticed a smoldering wick, you would say, put that thing out. What function is it serving? We don't have any more oil. All it's doing is ruining the wick. Like it's pointless for it to just keep smoking all night. Put that thing out. But Jesus isn't like that. He doesn't look and say, "What? that life is without meaning or purpose. No. He will not break that bruised reed. He will not put, snuff out that smoking flax. He's able to supply life and liberty to all who believe. That picture of the, the bent reed or that smoking flax, those are beyond hope. Those are irreversible conditions. But God is able to supply strength. He is able to restore and he is able to transform. When we're burning out, Jesus won't snuff us out. He will fan us into a flame and supply the Holy Spirit as fuel. According to the law of Moses, the menorah in the temple was to be kept lit perpetually. It was supposed to always be lit. Even during the middle of the night, the priests were supposed to rise and trim the wicks and add oil 24 hours a day. That was one of their main jobs, is to keep those lights burning. Because that's a picture of how God, he is the light of the world. He's always the light of the world. Pretty cool, huh? Verse 4, he will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. So the Messiah that God sends, he would not fail and he would not be discouraged. Have you ever failed or been discouraged? It's kind of like shooting fish in the proverbial barrel, right? That's kind of life. <laughs> Failing, discouragement, it's very much what we deal with every day. Now, a proponent of social justice, they would, they would cite some discouragements as, as uh, hunger or poverty, lack of clean water, education, lack of medicine. While the aim of tackling all these issues has merit, it would be easier to implement every single one of them at the same time than to establish justice in the earth. We have such a lack of justice in every human heart. There's wickedness that reigns in us. You talk about an impossible task, but he will not fail nor be discouraged until he has accomplished it. He will establish justice in the earth. The law doesn't bring justice, it shows us how unjust we are. 
That's why we need courts and laws and judges and solicitors. Because we are unjust. That's why we need jails. That's why there are armies. It's because of the wickedness of the human condition. But he won't fail. He won't be discouraged. He's going to establish something. And he can establish it in you and in me, his righteousness. He came as a meek servant. He will return as a conquering king and judge of all the earth. We are easily discouraged, aren't we, when we're slandered or cheated, robbed, accused. Jesus was the target of all that and more. But he had not failed. He was not discouraged. He's faithful. He would see it done. In the original language, it's interesting, the word translated bruised, where it says a bruised reed, he will not break. And the word that says he will not be discouraged, it's the exact same word in the original Hebrew. We are easily bruised, but Jesus is not. He was bruised for our transgressions. He was wounded for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. He rose as a living God. He was God before, and he rose immortal, perfected as a man. So that's amazing to think about, that those bruised ones, he's not like that. So he's able to help us when we are. During this study, I was drawn to 2 Kings chapter 7. And while you're turning there, we're going back about 200 years in the history of Israel. And I was just so compelled by this story just to tell it to you this morning. So 2 Kings chapter 7. Cyrus, that foreshadowing of Jesus, who would be the true Savior and Messiah, the life of Elisha also bears resemblance to Jesus because Elisha, he had a double measure of the Holy Spirit that Elijah had. But Jesus, we read, he has the Holy Spirit without measure. So infinitely greater, infinitely more powerful. It's not measurable the distance. There was a difference that was measurable between Elijah and Elisha with a measure of the Holy Spirit upon them. But we know Jesus, the Holy Spirit, without measure. So without limit. The point that I want to make in referencing this passage is that what God says, all he has said, will come true. He will not fail. He will not be discouraged. This is true concerning nations, and it's true concerning you personally and the promises God has given. You may resemble that burning flax or a bent reed, but know that God is gracious to those who repent. And when you reach the end of your strength and the end of your resources, Christ will supply your need when you look to him. There is hope for you today in Jesus, in nothing else. Not if your circumstances change. There's no hope in that. We often place our hope in my circumstances changing or my feelings changing or something about my life changing. There's only hope through Jesus. That's it. Everything else, it's going to fade. It's not going to satisfy. It won't last. Now, a little background on this message um, back in 2 Kings. The king of Syria had come against the northern kingdom of Israel and besieged Samaria, the capital. The famine was so severe that people had resorted to eating their own children. 
And the, it reached a boiling point when the king was walking through the streets and a lady says, oh, king, hear my case. And he's like, how am I supposed to help you? And he says, look, me and my flatmate, we made a deal. We were going to eat my kid yesterday and we were going to eat hers today. Well, we boiled and ate my child yesterday, but today she's hiding her kid and she won't let us eat him. Now, just to give you an idea of what's happening, pretty severe. The king was furious. This is King Joram, king of Israel, son of Ahab and Jezebel, a wicked man, an idolatrous king. He did not trust God. He was fine to blame God when things went bad. And he was fine to kill the prophets of God. Such was his hatred. Now, Elisha knew that Joram was coming. And he said, he's coming, but I've got a word for him. 2 Kings 7, verse 1. Then Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Tomorrow about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Now this is a complete reversal of the situation that was happening there. A prolonged siege that had come to the point where people are eating kids. Okay, that's something you would never do. But here we read that they were doing it. So he's talking about fine flour, barley, in the gate. The previous chapter, it said this, 2 Kings 6.25, And there was a great famine in Samaria, and indeed they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth of a cab of dove's droppings for five shekels of silver. Now, donkeys are not clean under the law, and the donkey's head would not be a prized part of the animal. However, it was selling for big bucks. Such was the siege. And that cab, the cab is the smallest Hebrew dry measurement of anything. And these dove droppings, the word used there, it's the only time used in Scripture. So it's not, um, it's dung, likely, but these small seed pods or pulse that was typically relegated to animal food only, little seeds that you wouldn't, you wouldn't even think to eat, but here it's going for silver. It was bad. It was awful. And he says, tomorrow, this time, you'll be eating in the gate fine flour and barley. This seemed impossible. You know, Jesus said a lot of things that seemed impossible at the time. He talked about leaving and dying. In John 16, 33, he says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. It's like, okay, my master dying, leaving. Where he's going, I can't go. But I can be of good cheer because he's overcome. And he goes to a cross. But this is the truth. We need to take God at his word. After his resurrection, he said in Acts 1.8, I referenced it earlier, but I'll read it to you. It says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He's talking to men that were locking themselves and hiding for fear of the Jews. And he's saying, you won't just be a minister and a witness unto me here in Jerusalem, but in Samaria where the Gentiles are and to the ends of the earth. And God saw it done. He, he didn't fail. He was not discouraged. His people failed, were discouraged. 
But these same promises, impossible as they may seem, given your circumstances, these are true for us today. We can be filled with the Spirit. We can rejoice and have the peace of God that passes understanding. Verse 2. So an officer on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? And he said, In fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Here we have a picture of the man upon whom the king leaned. He leaned on his hand. This was a powerful and trusted advisor. This was a confidant, someone that he would he would trust, lean on to an extent. But he chose as his confidant and companion an unbeliever. He questioned the truth of Elisha's claim. He said, even if the skies were to open up, How could this happen? Totally impossible. And Elisha says, you'll see it, but you won't eat of it. And that's a sad prospect. It's like you see the salvation of God. You see his deliverance and his provision, but it doesn't touch you. You're not able to receive of it because you haven't believed. And I believe, I'm convinced that there are many children of the king, people who are born again, genuinely, who balk at God's word, who don't really believe what it says based upon just the naked word of God alone. They don't believe it, and so they remain empty. There is a lack of fulfillment. There is less than what God has supplied them because they don't believe God's word. They're like this man. God has promised to open the windows of heaven for those who give themselves to him, right? In Malachi chapter 3. He says, prove me now in this, if I will not open the windows of heaven. God has the ability to open the windows of heaven to you and to me. When the heavens seem like steel and nothing's getting through, God can do that. He can open. He's opened up his arms to you. Had that official leaned on God's word, he would have found it capable to support his weight. He would have found it true. He would have not just seen it, but he would have tasted of it. Does very good, very little good for us to know doctrine, but to not be able to say, I haven't tasted and seen. I've seen, I've seen got other people's lives changed, but I've, I've never tasted it. Verse 3, now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, we will enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. Now therefore come, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall only die. These are four desperate men, outcasts, lepers. In the gate, in the very place, they're hanging out where they're going to be feasting the next day. They just don't know it yet. They're stuck between famine in the city and death by the Syrians. And they say, well, if we do nothing, we're going to die of leprosy. Um, they're, you know what? The worst thing, it could, the best thing that could happen is would we die, really. I mean, what are we going to do? We can't go in the city. They're eating kids in there and donkey heads. And if we go out to the Syrians, at least we have a chance. They've got food. And worst case scenario, they kill us. But hey, that's the worst thing that could happen, and maybe the best. 
Verse 5, And they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses, the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. Therefore they arose and fled at twilight and left the camp intact, their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. And when these leopards came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one tent and ate and drank, carried from it silver and clothing, gold and clothing, and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried some from there also and went and hid it. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This is a day of good news, and we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. So these guys are mustering up their courage. They wait until evening. Maybe they won't notice that we're lepers. They start going to the camp, and lo and behold, there's no one there. No people anyway. There's animals, there's horses, and but no people. The previous chapter says that the king of Syria had sent his entire army to Samaria. And they had been there for a while. And then the army, he caused them to hear this sound of marching and chariots and men and a great host. And they're thinking, oh no, while we're gone over here, home is getting attacked. They're, they're without defense. And so they rushed away. So these lepers... They had no idea what God had done, but they were happy to eat some food and started plundering. And from tent to tent, you just see them like, oh, man, they're eating. Oh, this is taking that. and I've definitely taking that. And running back and hiding it. And then, oh, there's something over here. So they're just scurrying around. They just hit the jackpot. But then the gravity of the situation begins to dawn on them. They go, whoa, 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 wait a second. People are dying in the city, and if the king finds out that we knew about this and we didn't tell them, oh, we're in trouble. So we'd better, we'd better let the king know. It was a day of good news. They were remaining silent, and how pure were their motives? Pretty impure. They were maybe even thinking, doesn't say this, but maybe we'll even get a reward for telling the king. You know, hey, let's, we've already got our stash. Let's let's let them know. So verse 10. So they went and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, saying, We went to the Syrian camp, and surprisingly no one was there. Not a human sound, only horses and donkeys tied and the tents intact. And the gatekeepers called out, and they told it to the king's household inside. So the king arose in the night and said to his servants, Let me now tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, When they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. The lepers report their find. Word reaches the king in the night. Does he believe the report? No. He says, let me tell you what's happening. It's a trick. They want to get in. I don't know why they want to get in at this point, but he suspects a trap. He's like, I know those guys. They just retreated a bit. but They want us to lure us out of the city, and then they want to get in. So if it was up to the king, he would have went to bed despite the power of God and what God had done. Verse 13, And one of his servants answered and said, Please, 
Let several men take five of the remaining horses which are left in the city. Look, they may either become like all the multitude of Israel that are left in it, or indeed, I say, they may become like all the multitude of Israel left from those who are consumed. So let us send them and see. Therefore they took two chariots with horses, and the king sent them in the direction of the Syrian army, saying, Go and see. And when they went after them to the Jordan, and indeed all the road was full of garments and weapons which the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. So the messengers returned and told the king. So this servant, he pipes up. He says, King, please reconsider. We only have a handful of men, uh, of able-bodied people left in the city. Take five horses and just check it out. Have them go out. Maybe they'll die, but it's no worse than what's happening to us. And they find that the evidence that the soldiers had left, their clothes, their swords, spears, they're just littering the ground. Clearly, they were gone, confirming the word of the lepers. And this is really the punchline, starting in verse 16. Then the people went out and plundered the tents of the Syrians. So a seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appointed the officer on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. But the people trampled him in the gate, and he died, just as the man of God had said, who spoke when the king came down to him. So it happened just as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, Two seahs of barley for a shekel, and a seah of fine flour for a shekel, shall be sold tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. Then that officer had answered, the man of God, and said, Now look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he said, In fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. So just in case you didn't pick it up, it's repeated twice again. The man on whom the the king leaned the guy that said this, this is what happened. And really, this is, I mean, you, you read that, and it's like, get this, guys. Understand what he's saying. What was impossible the day before, it didn't just seem impossible, it was impossible, but God does the impossible. He's able to do that. The word of God was fulfilled. Just as God had said. So consider, what has God said? What has he said to you? He will not fail. He will not be discouraged. That man given charge over the gate, the man upon whom the king leaned, who did not believe, he was trampled. So he saw it, but he never tasted of it. It's a vivid object lesson for all of us concerning God's word. It's like the desperate lepers, they'll eat, and the unbelieving, even the high, high and mighty upon whom the king leaned, will be trampled. And so the question is, are we willing to lean on the word of God today? Are we willing to lean upon Christ? Because the ones who lean upon him, the ones upheld by God, are the ones that God looks to and says, that is a faithful servant. That's a person who will eat of my fullness, who will partake of my nature. The one in whom I delight, the one upon whom I will put my spirit in full. 
We fail, but God's love never fails. He will keep his word. We can get very distracted by timing. And I'm sure the people, they realized they could only survive in Samaria for a limited amount of time. And they, they knew that the days were, were getting short. That there was, the hope was, was their own hope. Many of them had lost hope. And there were others that their only hope was, was in God. Could you please turn to Ephesians 3? Verse 16. Let's consider God's will for your life. I don't want to be like the unbelieving man who saw with his eyes, but he wasn't able to eat of it. Jesus is the bread of life, the living bread that's come down from heaven. If we partake of him, we will live forever. And we do that through faith. That knowledge of doctrine, knowing that Jesus is the Son of God, it doesn't mean that we've tasted and seen that he's good. Now, this is Paul's prayer for believers Ephesians 3, 16 through 21. So if you're a believer, this is for you. This is your reality. It says that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. When we give ourselves to God in faith, he will open the windows of heaven to us. And if you can identify with being that bruised reed or smoking flax, what do you have to lose in trusting God and taking him at his word? Like those lepers. Hey, there's death on one side, there's death on the other, but we have no hope. We've got to take a chance. You know, trust God's word. Believe it. Walk in it. Put your confidence in him. Lean on him. He will uphold you. He's the only one who can. Thank you, Lord, for your word, for how vivid and remarkable it is to each of our situations. Lord, I pray that we would be those in whom you delight, who you uphold, because we lean upon you. We want to be those who are faithful stewards that you can commit the true riches of the kingdom to, Father. And I pray that this Ephesians passage would be fulfilled in our hearts today. That even if we've been in a time of spiritual famine, as it were, and we're wasting away, that that even today, not tomorrow, right now, could be the beginning of a period of abundance where we lack no good thing because we trust you and we're taking you at your word. So I pray, Lord, you would quicken us all, you would convict of sin and unbelief, and that you would fill our hearts with your peace and your presence and that we would comprehend your love that you have for us, that you died for us even while we were yet sinners. Thank you for that demonstration. Thank you for our brothers and sisters here. 
that we can fellowship with, that we can praise you together and glorify your name. All glory to you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.